0: I think the most important thing that any of us collect are stories, Uh, and, and I fully believe that we are each individually a product of our experiences, and those experiences either come to us firsthand or they come to us, you know, by means of a story. Stories are at the very core of why I'm a collector.
1: What's going on, everybody, and welcome to Collector's Gene Radio. This is all about diving into the nuances of collecting and ultimately finding out whether or not our guests have what we like to call the collector's gene. If you have the time, please subscribe and leave a review. It truly helps. Thanks a bunch for listening, and please enjoy today's guest on Collector's Gene Radio. Today, we're chatting with a friend of mine who's been a collector for as long as he can remember. James Lambden, founder of Analog Shift, is no stranger to the watch and car community. Fresh off a sale to watches of Switzerland, we talk about how he got into collecting from an early age and how things have changed since running a successful business. Not only a collector of the aforementioned, but James is a rare movie posters, vinyls, coffee table books, and just about anything else he can get his hands on, collector. But if there's one thing that James has, that's patience, which makes him always collect with a purpose. I mean, the guy's just getting ready to pick up a multi-year project on a vintage 911 and drive it through the West Coast. As James puts it, he's never met a dollar he couldn't spend. So without further ado, James Lambton for Collectors Gene Radio. James, so good to chat with you, and welcome to Collectors Gene Radio. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So we've been buddies for a few years now, and I think you and I met via watches and your company Analog Shift But we actually had a connection long before that, which we didn't know. And that was cars and maybe a specific dealership. But we don't have to get into that. It's true. You're a collector of a lot of things. Cars, watches, movie posters, vinyls, coffee table books, action figures. I mean, you're definitely the uh, epitome of the collector. But I'm curious to know, uh, for something like coffee table books, for example, right? um, Vinyls are easy to store. Coffee table books, maybe not so much. I also collect coffee table books and at, at some point storage gets a little tight. So how, how do you deal with that? Cause I need some advice. Uh,
0: you gotta have a lot of different coffee tables I think is the way to deal with that.
1: <laughs> and a lot of coffee.
0: Yeah. Well, there's, <laughs> there's not enough going around. Uh, yeah. I, I think, um, I think I just sort of try and store them in a, in a visually appealing way on the shelf and then sort of rotate what's being displayed at any one time.
1: Are there specific coffee table books that you're, you're after? Cause I mean, I know have, I have my niche of, of what I like, but I'm curious if, if you just buy something that looks good, that interests you or.
0: Well, I mean, there are books that do just look really good on your shelf. Um, you know, you got to have the John James Audubon, you know, print masterpieces. You got to have that, right? But most of what I buy is um, covering a subject matter that I am interested in. I actually, I think I just got maybe one of the ultimates. It was a a gift to me for a recent uh, birthday. I just got the uh, new Tashin Ken Adams portfolio of all of his James Bond concept art. This thing is a monster. It comes with its own like acrylic display stand. And- I honestly don't know what the hell I'm going to do with this thing cuz I do live in a in a small New York City apartment. So, um it's pretty big and uh yeah, a couple of my friends pitched in and got that for me for my birthday, which was super generous. But
1: That's awesome. That's a sick book.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm really excited. It was a pre-order, so I think it ships later this year.
1: Love it. Let's talk about your background a bit. Um everyone knows you for watches and cars maybe one more than the other based on your, your business. But I'm curious to know what came first for you, your love for watches or cars?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, cars and watches are definitely the two big ones, but as you said at the beginning, it's, it is everything, uh, never met a dollar I couldn't spend on something interesting. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, for me it was cars first, for sure. Um, I think my association with watches does go back to my childhood, Um, my, you know, my father had a, had a Rolex GMT that my mother bought for him as a wedding gift. And it was, you know, by far the most valuable thing in the house. And I was often admonished not to mess around with it. Um, but cars, cars were in the driveway. You know, we went places in the cars. We did things in the cars. A lot of my childhood memories come from the, you know, passenger seat of my dad's old land cruiser or from the, uh, the 1976 BMW 2002 that we had for a while, and I think for a lot of people, uh, you know, cars are our first taste of, of freedom. And so by the time I was a teenager, it was all cars all the time. Every dollar I made working odd jobs or when I eventually had a full time job, they all went towards gas and, and uh, repairs and, and modifying cars. So I'm going to put cars first. And I'm actually going to put cars first uh, as of right now. Uh, as my number one love. Um, Watches I I do for a living and I love them, don't get me wrong. But uh, now that I don't work in the car business anymore, cars are are truly my escape and uh, I love them fiercely.
1: Love it. We'll definitely get back to cars a little bit um, and kind of bounce back and forth as as we chat about watches and cars because they relate so much. But you've said in the past and, and mentioned to me in previous conversations that Your grandfather got you into watches and and taught you really how to be more of like a storyteller, if you will. I'm curious how has this helped you in your career and then subsequently collecting to be that storyteller?
0: Yeah. I mean, listen, I I think the most important thing that any of us collect are stories. Uh, and, And I fully believe that we are each individually a product of our experiences and those experiences either come to us firsthand or they come to us you know by means of a story and whether those are firsthand accounts from somebody in our life or you know the media that we consume through print or visual art or what have you stories are at the very core of why I am a collector and they're out at, at the very core of, of my business with analog shift when i launched the company we were on the cutting edge of e-commerce which is Kind of crazy to think, given how analog-minded I I truly am and how much difficulty I had logging into this very podcast recording. (laughs) Um, That was our medium, but our raison d'etre was actually storytelling. So each of our product listings had great photography, yes. Had the core information uh, and a price and a click-to-buy-it-now button, yes. But they also had between 500 and 1,500 words on each and every product, and, and we still do that. And whether we know the history of a particular watch or we just know a little bit about the era in which it was produced, what was going on socio-politically, you know, what might have been the um, reason for the original design or, or order of a particular watch model, storytelling is at the very, very heart of it. And so you know, whether you're interested in watches for their aesthetics, or their mechanics, or perhaps for uh, an investment value, or just a little bling bling, the romantic X factor to me for all of those things is the story behind it. And so that's, that's really at the core of, of my business for sure.
1: Someone else that you look up to who's known for being an amazing collector is Clive Custler. Did you look up to him as a novelist first or as a car watch collector?
0: Definitely, as a novelist first, uh, I discovered Clive Cussler at a very young age. Originally, I actually I remember spotting *Iceberg* in my grandfather's bedroom at very uh, the cover art was from a 70s or maybe early 80s paperback edition. It was a you know an *Iceberg* covered in blood, uh, you know, very grabby things for a young boy. And then I, I spotted uh, *Raise the Titanic* on my dad's shelf. And I had a childhood fascination with shipwrecks and and, personal, and specifically with the Titanic. And so I think I was in probably fourth grade when I grabbed that book off the shelf and started reading it. And, and yes, I, I had my first encounter with the, the watch brand Doxa on the pages of Clive's books. Um, and I started consuming them ravenously. Um, Tom Clancy famously wrote that uh, a new Clive Cussler novel was like a, a visit from your best friend. And, um, yeah, yeah, definitely Clive Cussler, the storyteller, um, was my first association. And then of course, as, as I got a little bit older, I started getting a little bit more into the, the cars that he'd write about or, um, look forward to that, you know, note on the orange face Doxa diving watch that, that his protagonist wore so famously in the books.
1: Have you seen his, uh, car collection in person?
0: I haven't. Um, very sadly, I, I through a, a mutual friend was arranging a visit uh, in, uh, that was supposed to be in summer 2020 in, in which case I, w- I was actually hoping to um, go out and, and meet Clive, uh, who's been a longtime hero of mine, uh, and, and visit his, his car collection uh, as well. and uh, sadly and, and very tragically, he passed away. In January or February of, of 2020, right before the pandemic began, um, that was a, a really hard thing for me. I remember shutting the door to our lounge and, and just having a good cry and calling my dad uh, to let him know. I have met his son, Dirk, who's just an absolute gem of a human being, a super, super nice, generous guy who I think, um, I think, I think he and his father – had a lot in common and unfortunately I won't be able to judge that for myself now but uh I'm glad that that tradition is is carrying on
1: well I don't know if you know but a lot of his collection is actually here in in Scottsdale with his most recent wife who I I know decently well so next time you're in town I'll have to schedule a visit with her and you could go do a little private tour of a lot of his collection
0: that would be incredible I will definitely take you up on that
1: he obviously had some great watches too, but, um, she always, every time I see her, she's always wearing one of his watches and it's a watch that I own that I know you also have a passion for. And it's the Ralph Lauren slim classic, which I thought was kind of cool that that was a watch he had too.
0: Those are great. Um, I, I think that, uh, boy, they, they've done such a good job over the years and it, it, it's coming and going. It seems to be mostly polo bear watches right now, but, uh, in the past decade they've had some real bangers for sure
1: no doubt um definitely undervalued but that's a story for another another episode but um i'm curious to know if you remember the watches that you had when you started analog shift
0: oh yeah yeah i mean you have to understand i basically started analog shift to justify buying all the watches that i wanted there was one in particular uh it's an Omega uh, 600 meter Ploprof, you know, the big asymmetric, mm-hmm. uh, ungainly giant slab of steel, which was Omega's response to the Sea Dweller. You know, of course, they said yeah, Rolex can put a helium escape valve in. we're just going to make a big honking uh, chunk of steel and uh, a locking bezel with this weird, uh, you know, red button that unlocks the, be- you know, it a ridiculous watch. It was ridiculous then. It's ridiculous now. I couldn't justify buying one for myself, but if it was inventory, uh, you know, you, you can buy it. So I, I bought one of those, square, you know, right away, couple day just, couple subs, had a really neat 1920s Hamilton piping rock, had a uh, Sin 142 that was actually owned by Helmut Zinn at one point. I kind of regret selling that one. Had a Doxa Sub 300 on there, um, Breitling Cosmonaut. Uh, some really cool stuff. I, I think sort of the very fundamental core of of what analog shift is all about. And it's not just, you know, the uh, the Rolex and Patek models that everyone expects. We've always sort of um, waded into the more nuanced uh, corners and niches of, of the collecting community. Um, so I think, our, if anything, our launch collection was about as pure an expression of what analog shift is and, and was as, as it could be.
1: Yeah, no doubt. And then you, you recently sold to watches of Switzerland um, in which you're now VP of Vintage and pre-owned, which is extremely impressive. So first off, congrats to you. Thank you. And secondly, has collecting changed for you at all since you sold the company?
0: That's a great question. I think I've actually started buying less for myself, keeping less for myself. I'm not sure why. Um, I, I certainly have, um, you know, and, and to be clear here, if, if a day goes by in which I don't buy a watch either for myself or for, you know, inventory purposes, I get pretty itchy. But realistically, um, yeah, it's been, it's been fewer. I won't say that my tastes have changed dramatically. It's not that I've started buying a, a totally different category of watch or different price point of watch um, I think I've just been a little bit more thoughtful about what I'm actually going to keep and where. And that's important to me. Um, my watch collection at times has surged with just lots of really neat stuff that I felt the need to sort of preserve and protect and um, almost function as a, as a museum of sorts. Uh, but now that we have uh, the added resources that Watches of Switzerland has brought to us, um, I don't really need to think about keeping stuff for the purposes of showing it to others because we can just we can just get some more.
1: Yeah, no doubt, and that's probably the most fun part about your job now <laughs> is not worrying if if you need it for stock or if you need it for your own collection.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's um, this the sale of the company was was not something that I had originally uh, planned. I didn't I didn't build Analog Shift to sell, and, and frankly, I had been approached. Uh, a number of times prior, uh, but we had we had an ongoing partnership with Watches of Switzerland that was uh, very successful for both both sides. And during the pandemic, uh, they reached out to me and said, "You know, do you want to come in where it's warm and and we'd love to keep going?" And it felt like the right time, and it felt like the right partnership more than anything. And they've um, you know they've really empowered myself and my team to 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 build up analog shift to its full potential inside um, the structure of watches of Switzerland, U.S. So it's been an incredibly rewarding uh, few years. And actually, it's almost it's going to be three years this summer, which is hard to believe.
1: You've also done some collaborations. One that was, I guess, a personal favorite of mine was with J.Crew. So how did that partnership come about? And was the overall idea not only about the synergy between the two brands, because it's evident, but the overarching Idea of buying something from a seller you trust because that's what all vintage pre owned and, and modern dealers say is you know, buy the dealer.
0: Yeah, I think I listen. I, I, with respect to the J. Crew partnership, you know, it was wonderful, uh, in the sense that you know they're an American heritage brand, and it and you know, I wear a lot of J. Crew, they make a great, um, affordable product for. For a guy who's sartorially challenged, Um, it's sort of a one-stop shop. But, uh, you know, I think that you inherently have challenges when uh, you're trying to curate a collection for someone else and you have to make sure that there's the appropriate amount of information and presentation for a different type of buyer, Uh, with that said, we had a fair amount of success with J crew from a, from the watch standpoint, but my favorite part was certainly being able to work with them and, and get our logo on some of their, um, American made, uh, headwear, some of their, some of their made in New York caps, which I really loved. And, um, also they did a a very generous, uh, lifestyle piece on, on me, but let's face it, the real star was my dog.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They always steal the show.
0: They really do. He's the best.
1: Yep. Another collab you did was with, uh, John Reardon from collectability. And this was an event based on a collection of like atomic age master clocks from Patek Philippe, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that's right. We called it uh meeting point and we had a big exhibition, uh, last summer here in New York.
1: What's the story behind those?
0: Uh, there's so many stories about, about, those, that's <laughs> what talking about. um, um, John gave me a call uh, probably around this time last year and said, hey, I have a crazy idea and I'd like to run it past you and see if you'd be interested in partnering. And he proceeded to explain the history of this collection, uh, which is the world's largest collection of Patek Philippe electronic timing machines that, uh, first off, there was a, a bulk of them that we were able to acquire from a single seller, and then we added uh, a number of additional units, including what could be argued uh, the centerpiece of the collection, which was a master timing system built by Patek for Rolex. Uh, and, and we acquired those separately and added to the collection. That's um, insane. Yeah. It, it, I mean, you have to see these things To and you could go to our YouTube page. We have a cool video about them, a couple of cool videos about them. Uh, but these things are, you know, up to five, six feet tall, And there are these giant racks of of electronic uh, timing systems that would have been used for anything from um, master timing control at a power plant or an airport. We had Swiss Parliament uh, hydroelectric facilities. We had a a scrambling device for um, some foreign intelligence service. We don't know which one. Um, We had equipment from NASA, from the French Marine Nationale. Um, it felt like being in a in Blofeld's lair uh, here in our office. There are just all these um, you know flashing lights and, and moving dials. And what's interesting about them, and this is something that these were John's words, not mine, but he, he actually said, you know, they are the analog shift. They the, these actually represent the moment in time in a pre digital age in which technology began to move towards electronics from traditional mechanical. But they still had mechanical underpinnings and they're, they're a masterpiece. So, um, we, uh, we partnered with John, put them on exhibition. We moved the bulk of the collection out to his offices when he opened his new place out in New Jersey. Uh, but we still have a few here and, uh, we still own them, uh, which is really exciting to have. So a lot of scholars had come through a lot of press and media and a lot of, uh, collectors as well. Technically the collection is for sale, but it's, it's a hard thing to uh, put in your, in your living room.
1: <laughs> yeah, you need it in your airport hangar.
0: That's right. That's right.
1: When I when I first heard about the exhibition and, and started to learn about the clocks and stuff, it, it gave me the same feeling as I had when I was a kid and I learned that Rolls Royce made engines for airplanes. Right, I that totally blew my it. mind, and it gave me the same feeling knowing what these you know clocks from Patek were used for. Uh, I just thought it was super neat.
0: For sure, definitely one of the sort of dusty, unexplored corners of horology that I think, you know, really are representative of an important era and also changed the entire story as far as Patek Philippe is concerned. Um, you know, any watch collector has heard of the quartz crisis and, and we know that it, it um, the introduction of a $10, you know, Casio or, or what have you from Japan was the death knell for you know, numerous brands around the world and caused the the rest of them, uh, traditional watchmaking brands to to change their, their business um, to adapt and survive in the new digital world. But these devices are sort of proof positive that Patek, you know, didn't just weather the storm. They, they may have been on the very leading edge of it.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Why do you think it was important for collectors to come in and see an exhibition and, and, you know, product like this that they may never get to see again.
0: Well, the bulk of this collection had been in private hands uh, for many, many years. And then again, when we added additional units to to the collection, additional pieces, we realized that this was, you know, by far the largest gathering of these machines since they were made. Um, and possibly, not, you know, uh, not even then that were they all at the same place at the same time. So I think that certainly the fact that they said Patek Philippe on them was a huge draw, but it's important because it's very easy for collectors to get, you know, sort of caught up in the moment's hype cycle. And it's important to let people know that Patek Philippe did more than make Aquanauts, Nautiluses, and then, you know, some time ago, some small yellow gold Calatravas. There's a lot more to their story. Just as there's a lot more to their story for most of these brands that we know and love, And I think um, you don't have to be a scholar to appreciate it. I think you just have to be interested and getting them all in one place where you can see it and touch it and and actually hear it is a special thing. I still miss the reverberation of those machines in the office. It seems deathly quiet in here for the last, uh, you
1: know, six or eight (laughs) months. That's great. All right. Let's get back to cars for a minute. Obviously cars have a, higher barrier to entry than watches. But just like any other collection, once you get started, you can't stop. So X amount of years ago, business starts taking off for you. What's the first car you go to, to start the stable for lack of a better term?
0: Well, in the, in the post or, 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 or during analog shift era, the car that I went to go buy was a, um a BMW M coupe. And I, I had convinced myself that that was the perfect car to uh, use as an escape pod from the city and, uh, you know, go out and visit friends and, and so on in New Jersey or, or up in New England um, and started shopping around for one uh, with intent. And during that search, uh, I discovered that the values on the car I really wanted uh, and had wanted since I was 17 had uh, bottomed out. And we're starting to go up. And that was for the E39 M5. And so my search changed very quickly from an M coupe to an M5. And yeah, I snagged one in, in pretty short order. And where'd you go from there? Well, a couple. <laughs> a
1: couple. <laughs> Sounds like you have a problem.
0: <laughs> uh, listen, it's uh, it's more of just a parking problem. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah it's pretty hard to have... Uh, more, than, more than one car at a time. I mean for, for a long time, just having one car in New York was a, a pretty challenging thing. but uh, the truth of the matter is that when I launched analog Shift originally, I wasn't quite sure what I what I was going to do with it. I, I had interest in watches, interest in cars, interested in, in content creation and, and interest in, in commerce. And e- even our very first logo, uh, we used a, a slash between analog and shift. And our first logo, we had two variations of the logo, a blue slash, which was um, meant to pay homage to a, a vintage Hoyer chronograph, and a red slash, which started to make it look a little bit more like a, a tachometer. And I wasn't sure whether, you know, we could maybe blend cars and watches and, and so on and so forth. But the other thing I did um, after getting the M5 was I pulled uh, a Porsche 912 that I had, you know deteriorating in a barn, uh, up in Maine that I had bought years prior for pennies. Um, I pulled it out and sent it to a shop, uh, for an estimate on, um, you know, getting it up and running. And in the words of Carol Shelby, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. So, um, you know, a tune up and, uh, (laughs) a little bit of body work turned into a a five-year restoration, which, also just um, also just finished that's right, yeah, and I'll be actually flying out to uh, to the west coast to pick that car up uh, in just a few weeks and and bring it home
1: and are you still gonna do that drive coming through Arizona here
0: that's the plan that's the plan I'll let you know uh, once the the dates are settled it should be in just a few days
1: perfect it's arguably difficult right to drive multiple cars a day, let alone any if you live in New York City. So where and when do you find time to drive any car?
0: Well, the, here's the thing about car ownership in New York City is that you don't need a car. You don't need a car to commute. You don't need a car to get groceries. You don't need a car to make a, a run to the hardware store. You just want a car to leave, that's it. And <laughs> it's not really that unfriendly a place to have a car particularly one that's entirely um ridiculous <laughs> you know as new York because you don't need you don't need to rely on it at all you don't need to uh, have anything even remotely practical um as long as you know when to drive and when not to drive to avoid traffic, you're good to go and just avoid the potholes and you'll be you'll be fine
1: yeah and good luck avoiding them
0: yeah it's it takes a little bit of um situational awareness behind the wheel but a couple times a month is probably best case scenario. You know, maybe I'll take it out on a on a Sunday and drive it downtown, but more often than not I'll just use it to leave for the weekend. You know, storage is is a challenge, but fortunately there's some good options here nowadays.
1: What would you say is one major difference between the enjoyment that you get out of collecting cars versus watches?
0: Well, you know, look, a watch a watch is with you all the time and its accuracy depends on, on you. You have to set it, you have to wear it, you have to use it. And with that comes, a, I think an important tie to the mechanical object with a car. It'll just sit there, uh, waiting for you, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get to go and you have, yeah, you have to take care of it, but then you get to put it on and go take it for a spin. And I, I've always liked that, you know, a, a good car that you're familiar with is more like putting it on than getting into it. Yep, and, for sure. Uh, I think, it, especially living in New York, the, the tie to a, a car um, becomes all the more important. And yeah, I mean, I, I look forward to it all the time. I'm, you know, uh, looking at the keys to to one of my cars that I keep here at the office on my desk, and just uh, you know, wishing I was going out for a blast right now on a Monday afternoon and uh, in sixty degree sunny weather, but also realizing that um, our former president is, is coming in from LaGuardia and his motorcade and I, I want to stay off of uh, the <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
1: time Time is always the biggest issue with a lot of things in life. And when it comes to collecting and running a company, time is even more limited. Luckily with watches, that's your career. So you get to see a lot of stuff, but cars, a little more difficult. So how do you make time to collect?
0: Well, I mean, again, with the watches, it's, it's all the time, you know, um, the line I'd be lying if I said that the, the line between, you know, my collecting and, and what I do, um, for, you know, searching for inventory doesn't get blurred. Um, it has for years and probably will always, as long as I'm in this business, I, you know, if I get to see it first and I want it then, well, uh, sorry guys, it's (laughs) fine. Um, with, with car collecting, um, listen, I've always been a driver first. I, I don't really care about showing my car. Um, in fact, I've, I've asked a few friends that, you know, if I ever do turn into the collector who sits in a lawn chair with a, you know, cardboard, you know, pie chart of all of my, uh, expenses and, and restoration pictures and awards that I've won, I just want to be put down. Um, uh, no, I, I you know I, I'm the first thing I'm going to do with this over-restored Porsche project is is drive it 3,600 miles across the country and hopefully pick up a few rock chips so I can stop being precious about the paint job. Um, so I try to find try to find reasons to to use it, and um, whether that's just shooting out to see some friends or uh, deciding to go get sandwiches, you know, two hours away on a Saturday. That's fine too. Cars and coffee is a great cultural phenomenon just to get out, give yourself an excuse to get up early, go for a blast, have some caffeine come back and, you know, uh, still have your rest of your day ahead of you.
1: Do modern cars excite you anywhere near the same amount that vintage does?
0: In short, no. With that said, of course there are exceptions, but they're they're usually model specific. I don't think there's a single manufacturer today that I can look at and say, I like everything you're doing. Uh, I do feel that way about a couple watch companies, but with cars, uh, particularly, you know, I am, well, I'll, I'll, I'll still the soapbox, but I'm anti EV uh, for so many reasons. I think styling today is um, well, most notably primarily, absent um and most of the designs i see today are are just not my taste you know i just saw the new um bmw m2 uh design uh, that just got sort of unveiled and okay i love the box fenders that's cool but that's it (laughs) (laughs) you know and I, I, i you know woof so for a while my uh 2002 20 year old BMW M5 was my newest, you know, modern, reliable car. I did add a uh, the, the baby Aston, the 2009 Vantage.
1: Oh, I love that car,
0: I do too. I, I, you know, I wasn't looking for one, I was, <laughs> was actually by a pickup truck and uh, whoops, bought an Aston Martin Vantage for less than the cost of a GMC Sierra, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. So, yeah, I do have a a 2009 um, Vantage right now. It is a spectacular machine. You know, I I recently wrote uh, in the Motoring Journal that uh, the sound that it um, emits under heavy throttle is akin to a, you know, Supermarine Spitfire dispensing angry allied justice on a Messerschmitt. It is just about the greatest noise I've ever heard.
1: Yeah, the car's amazing.
0: And these are someone else's words, but uh, it might also be the only car on the road that makes a 911 look like an egg with four wheels.
1: Right. This is very true.
0: It's spectacular. And I, I can't believe how low the values are. I think that'll probably change, but that's not why I bought the car. I, I bought it because it's, it's a fucking masterpiece. What color is yours? Mine is uh tungsten silver metallic. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's just a beautiful car. And again, well to be honest with you the, the purchase of that car uh required stepping up some of my fashion sense i realized that you know i don't dress nicely enough to drive that car
1: the hawaiian shirts didn't cut it
0: yeah i mean listen i, I keep the i keep the aloha shirts for like a totally different sort of magnum pi vibe this is you know certainly got a little bit more of um, a <laughs> want to be secret agent to it so you know i've spent like Far too much money on you know, Santoni shoes, Don Hill suede jacket. Yeah, that was a whole lifestyle change, dude.
1: A new duffel bag in the back of the car that's just still stuffed with the tissue paper.
0: Right, right. It's a purple label felt, you know, yeah. le- leather trimmed.
1: You know, there is there is one car that you despise, and it's one that many others do as well. In in fact, you legitimately blew one up in the middle of the desert and I was just talking with Eli from auto about this the other day and I, you just have to tell everyone this story cause it's incredible.
0: Yeah. Um, so the, the Chrysler PT cruiser came out when I was, um, <laughs> getting my driver's license or one it was already
1: out. I don't know. Um, I hate them. Just I mean, hearing, hearing the name you have to laugh.
0: It's so bad. It's just <laughs> awful. And every single time I saw one on the street, I just wanted to kill it with fire. And, uh, so yeah, I had a, I had a bachelor party in, in Las Vegas, uh, in 2019 and a dozen of my friends, uh, bought me a running, driving Chrysler PT cruiser for the sole purpose of bringing it to a firearms range, packing it full of, of Tannerite and blowing it to smithereens, which I did with a, with a, with a rifle, um, 300 yards and uh it it was so rewarding cameron like um you know apparently allegedly the uh the owner of the of the range we got lots of cars here you want to blow up a limo we got that you want to blow up a fire truck we've got that but my friends knew me and they said no it's it's got to be a chrysler pt cruiser
1: what color Um, was it yellow
0: it, it was red it was that maroon red the best part is that you know there was there was this couple sort of there. We were the you know we were the only people at the range except for this couple. And after a while, I'm like, you know, you guys work here at the range. They just sort of be like, they sort of were watching. Didn't quite understand. They said, no, that, that was our car. You just blew up. And uh, apparently, the, the range owner had actually gone to his neighbor's house and said, "I see you have this car. Uh, these <laughs> these assholes from New York want to
1: blow up." <laughs> <laughs> so the the owners of the car came to watch it get blown to smithereens that's right <laughs> that's unbelievable that that may be the best part of the story
0: well yeah honestly I've got pretty great friends and and that is um, that ranks very highly on the list of of awesome shit that I've I've uh, gotten to do in my life
1: yeah that's about as as cool as a gift from friends as you can get
0: truly truly keeps giving keeps on giving
1: before we wrap up here with the collector's zoom rundown I, I want to ask you one last question on collecting sure So I'm curious what collecting has done for you both personally and professionally.
0: Well, it's cost me a lot of money. Um, (laughs) You know, I I think that, you know, collecting, it's an interesting idea, right? The, The accumulation of stuff. And on some level, I don't really think of myself as overtly materialistic. But then I just look. Around my office, or I look around my apartment, or I think about my garage bills, and I realize I have lots and lots of stuff. And I think I'm just going to, you know, sort of blame it on my grandfather's storytelling. In that, everything he had, whether it was art or apparel or or vinyl collection or books, everything had a story. And and you know, you couldn't point at something in his house without telling you without him being able to tell you, you know, where he was when he got it, what he had for lunch that day, some sort of funny anecdote about it. And I realized that they became these sort of talismans of of a life well-lived. And it was very rarely about the object. In fact, if anything, my in my own journey, it's been less about the object and more about the story behind it. And that's been a it's been a truly wonderful thing to realize about myself is that sure. I love these things. I love the, the tactile, uh, and visual to so many of these different things, whether it's cars or watches or, or collectible movie posters, comic art, massive Lego collection, action figures, diecast, the coffee table books, you know, pocket knives, vintage objects, lighters, uh starting to get into fine art, photography, vinyl. But it's all about the story. And I'm sure this is something you keep uh, hearing on this podcast for those of us who are collectors, is that the story is really the, the whole point. And I'd like to think that I could give it all away as long as I packaged it with the story to the next custodian.
1: You got to give it to the people with the that had the PT Cruiser.
0: Full circle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, they got they got what they deserved.
1: <laughs> yeah. All right, let's wrap it up here with the collector's gene rundown. You can answer these questions based on any of your collections, whether it's movie posters or vinyls or cars, watches, whatever. Okay. What's the one that got away?
0: Uh, can I give you a couple from a different different categories? Is that okay? That would be great. All right. So, in a watch front, um, there was this. Uh, Submariner five five one two that was engraved on the sides of the case by a, a guns a gun engraver named Robert Swartley uh, sold at auction years ago. Uh, just beautiful Florentine sort of floral scripted uh, case case edges. Beautiful watch. Um, I was not ready for that watch when it was at auction. I didn't understand it. Now it's a, a sort of a fine art masterpiece in my book, and I don't know if it'll ever turn up uh, again. There was also a time where I could have. Forged uh, an 18 karat solid yellow gold uh, Royal Oak Jumbo 5402. I mean, I remember having a, a client who brought me one after he bought it, and the the, the seller sell, it sent it to him it wrapped in a sock. I mean, it was they they just didn't have the value that they have today. And I ended up selling that watch, but again, I should have I should have held it. For cars, I mean, there's probably too many to list, but I think the the first one that stands out to me is. My dad offered to buy me a two-door Range Rover a right-hand drive stick shift from, I think, 72 when I was 16 or 17 years old. And, of course, at that time, all I wanted was a sports car. Of course. And, I, you know, I think it was $2,500 for the, for the truck. Really regret not having the foresight at that time to realize how cool a vehicle that was. And, of course, values today are, are much higher. Uh, also got offered an E thirty M three for you know well under twenty thousand dollars for a great car that was that was definitely a stupid choice. Um, <laughs> and then, um, maybe eleven or twelve years ago, I had an opportunity to buy a street legal DB four race car, and it was a number. Well, let's just say that I have more in my Porsche now than that Aston was being listed for. That hurts. That was, yeah. Um, uh, Just a couple others. Uh, Posters. um, I'm perpetually trying to track down uh, an insert size. These are the sort of tall, narrow movie posters with art by Barry Jackson. It's the Escape from New York, uh, the John Carpenter film with Kurt Russell. I'm desperate to find one of these. And and they do pop up at auction every once in a while. But in this size, it's a super rare piece. uh, And I've missed a couple. And then in in the other art world, I also like comic art. I don't collect comic books, but I do collect comic art. Um, And there was this birthday card that Jim Steranko, legendary comic artist who uh, created, amongst other things, Nick Fury. Jim Steranko made a birthday card for Stan Lee. And the artwork is incredible. And I negotiated with the with a seller for some time and we just couldn't agree. And then it sold. And of course the moment you can't have it anymore, the, it became absolutely essential. <laughs> so I, I keep hoping that this birthday card that just says, you know, something like to Stan, uh, you know, from Jim or his alter ego, Nick Fury. And That's it's, amazing. Just, it's a marker drawing birthday card. Um, but it's it's incredible. I, I have a picture of it on like it's like a home page screensaver on my iPad. Like I love it. And uh I you know, too pig headed I guess, but oh well. <laughs> for now.
1: Those hurt. Those ones hurt. Yeah. How about the on deck circle? So what's next for you in your collecting?
0: Well, with watches, you know, I have a couple things that, you know, I have coming in um I'm really looking forward to getting this, uh, 18 karat uh, Movado daytron. Movado daytron was the, the watch that my father inherited from, from his father, my grandfather, um, in steel, a so sort of steel with a blue Panda dial and a, uh, beads of rice style bracelet. It's got a Zenith El Primero moving. It's super cool little 38 millimeter cushion case chronograph from the early seventies. And, um, I've collected a few of the steel ones over the years, but I, I discovered, a that they made them not only an 18 karat solid gold, but they actually made a very small number with an, uh, a mesh bracelet from the factory. Interesting. Um, a friend of mine here in New York found one. I got a chance to see it. I tried to buy it from him. He wasn't having it. Um, <laughs> I tracked down another one in Europe and bought it, um, Oh, God, probably six weeks ago, but getting it out of Europe has proven difficult. So I've got that coming uh, at some point when someone can make a trip across the pond. Um, but beyond that... Where uh, is it in Europe? Uh, it, it was in the Netherlands, and and now it's in um, Italy. It's getting it's getting bounced around until somebody can bring it over. I'm, uh, I'm going
1: to Italy this week, so you let me know.
0: Oh, all right, all right. That's good. Um, and then uh, I think I'm, I'm also exploring other areas of, of sort of the neo-vintage watch world. Um, particularly, um, I've developed a taste for Frank Muller. I think that their design language is is due for um, some love. And they really they defined watch collecting in New York in the 90s. They're fun. They're whimsical. tanos are cool. There might be a, another company on the on the hype cycle today, that uses an awful lot of that design language and gets all the credit I but, uh, <clears throat> might have come from Frogmuller. Muller. Um, yeah, that's, I think really that's true. In heritage, and I think they're uh, supremely cool and, and a great value. Uh, in terms of cars, you know, I'm I'm always looking every single day at what else is out there. At some point, I'd like to buy a, an Austin Healey race car a 100. Always looking at at other Aston Martins, I've become pretty. Big fan of the brand since getting this uh, this little Vantage, and I'm sure it won't be the last one in the collection. Uh, and then very excited to receive an actual modern practical car. You asked me earlier about new cars I like. Well, uh, there's one I like, and I actually ordered a Defender 90, uh, which will be here later this year. I'm excited
1: about that. Heck yeah, those are awesome.
0: And then um, posters. I mean, listen, I'm looking for a Jaws insert, an Alien insert. I'm looking for a nice condition one sheet of uh, Honor Majesty, Secret Service with art by Robert McGinnis and Frank McCarthy. I'm uh, I'm always looking out for this stuff.
1: (laughs) Good. Your eBay searches are going crazy.
0: It's nonstop. Ding, ding, (laughs) ding. Goodbye. (laughs)
1: Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye. How about the unobtainable? So one you can't have, it's either too expensive or in a museum, maybe a private collection.
0: I mean, I think for me – going back to that that db4 that i missed i you know someday i might be able to get up to a, you know getting a db4 but i think the db4 gt is is gone you know i think that that is that's you know short of winning a 2 billion dollar you know powerball um i don't think i'm going to own one of those cars and uh that's sad but that's probably the one for me that is on un- unobtainable
1: how about the page 1 rewrite so if you could collect anything besides your current collections, money, no object, what would it be and why?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I don't know that it's so much a, a uh, money, no object thing, but I really wish that I'd gotten into collecting some clothes, uh, like specifically some vintage Ralph, maybe the double RL stuff, the uh, polo country stuff before it really caught on with the um the vintage clothing guys. I, you know, I've never really looked at anything outside of an army Navy store <laughs> as, uh, as, as realistic, uh, used clothing, but some of their, uh, Jacquard, you know, sh- shirt jackets and an outerwear from the nineties and the early two thousands. is just killer. And the qualities, I think in many cases, way better than, than what, um, some of what they're making today. And I think I kind of just missed that boat. Um, so if I was going to start all over with collecting, I'd be sure to add um something in the sartorial sense. I mean inevitably, I think part of my personal collecting fallacy is that i I really do truly um not need anything until I can't have it and yep. <laughs> so once this once something you know I'll look at a jacket for weeks or months or a whole season or, or what have you. And then they'll discontinue that like, shit. And then I got to start tracking it down. And, and now because vintage and discontinued clothing is so hot, uh, you know, you end up paying a premium than if you just bought it at retail. And I, you know, I know nothing about clothes, not really technical outerwear. Yes. I have a former career in in, you know, ski apparel and things like that, but really looking at a, a well-made denim shirt or, uh, you know, what have you, that kind of, you know, more everyday stuff. But listen, a lot of my fellow dealers, uh, watch dealers, have figured this all out. And I've got just awesome threads, you know? I don't know. <laughs> yeah,
1: for sure. The vintage R- double RL stuff's amazing. So good. Yeah, doesn't get any better, to be honest. How about the GOAT for you? Who do you look up to in the collecting world?
0: Well, I, a lot of people, um, many of whom you've had on this show. Uh, but the, the person I keep thinking about is is my, my friend Larry Pipitone. Uh, Larry is a founding partner of a, a design firm um, called Grand Army, and he just has impeccable taste uh, in, in all things, in cars, in watches, in graphic illustration, and in and, and, and objects. And I love speaking with him and looking at his stuff because everything is incredibly thought out in a way that I think I'm a more of a shotgun approach, and he's definitely a sniper. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, he's brilliant. He's pretty low key, but, uh, if you get, if you get a chance to speak to him, uh, his nuance is, and thoughtfulness, mindfulness about his collecting is, is pervasive and everything he does and brilliant.
1: The hunt or the ownership, which do you like more?
0: The hunt, because the hunt, the hunt for me is, that's when you get to feel the romanticism of the story. Owning something is great, sharing something is great talking about it with you on a podcast is great but I, I do feel that it's the excitement of tracking something down the um, when you find that great condition thing that you've been looking for whether it's a specific you know make model trim color mileage price balance on a car or whether it's a lost forgotten gem in the horology world or even just finding a you know, mint and sealed box Kenner real Ghostbusters Ecto one, uh, you know, at a, at a vintage toy shop. Like there's an excitement in that hunt, and then it'll inevitably go in your garage or a watch roll or on a dusty shelf.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's true. Most importantly, do you feel that you were born with the collector's gene?
0: <sighs> well, I mean, if we, we're talking scientifically here, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if there's such a thing from a biological standpoint. Do I think that I have collector conditioning? I absolutely do. Uh, I think I I inherited that from my grandparents mostly. My parents, I wouldn't say, are terribly enthusiastic about materialist things. However, however, they did teach me the value of having a nice thing and – Buying something that lasts. So even when you know I was growing up in sort of a, a small house in a small town, living fairly conservatively, they always had a nice, a nice car, you know, and they always had really nice, uh, you know, cookware, and they had really nice luggage, and they still have it, you know. So whether it was my grandparents who. Uh, had more accumulation, but came with the stories, and then you balance that with, you know, my folks teaching me the value of, of buying something of high quality once and keeping it for as long as possible. The conditioning is there. A gene. Hey, it's a romantic story. Let's let's pull on that thread a little bit some other time. <laughs>
1: yeah, you got it, James. Always so good to catch up with you, man. Um, we don't get to do it as often as I would like, but I appreciate you coming on today and. Um, you're, you're the epitome of a collector, no doubt.
0: Well, Thank you very much, Cameron. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. It sounds like I'll see you in a few weeks.
1: Looking forward to it. All right, that does it for this episode. Thank you all for listening to Collectors Gene Radio.